If the internet had eyes, how brutally scarred the pupil, what hypnosis in the iris, such frights torment the whites, yet still I watch, and he watches I, until like ribbons our gazes braid and blaze, one burnt relentless eye, upon whose molten retina swirls, one last precious fading pearl, of me, young and blue, before being subsumed too. On that cheery note, hey everyone, welcome back to Solocene. This is the first episode of our internet semester, which is going to be at times dark, as Aaron's <laughs> poem alluded to, and we hope to, over the classes episodes, yeah. we hope to find some solutions to the issues of the internet. So if you're new to Solocene, basically our podcast is grouped into long semesters, each one, I don't know about three months or so, also 12 episodes around there. And each episode, we come in with questions pertaining to an overall larger umbrella topic facet of society. And the point of the podcast is to kind of deconstruct it and then reconstruct it in a way which is utopian. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be kind of maybe more so in this semester, pointing out some of the flaws in the existing structure of the internet, as it is in this case, mm -hmm. while also attempting to rebuild through a mildly fantastical lens, our beautiful, sustainable, tactile, utopian version of said internet. So the poem, as I opened with, I'm never really sure how to read like poem titles before poems. Should I say this is the poem title? I feel like at the end... At the when end saying it, yeah. yeah. It's weird. Obviously, if it's written down, it's obvious, but... So what's the title of the poem? It's If the Internet Had Eyes. Ah. So. Cool. I feel like when spoken word poets do it, they go, if the internet had eyes. And then they kind of they pause for, a few for a... And then they launch into this very animated, like using their hands and stuff. Yeah, It's a exactly. podcast though, so people don't know that I'm in fact not doing that. Mm. I'm just reading rather... Mechanically. Mechanically and looking quite scared probably. Mm. But anyway, that poem, I think we can all relate to it despite its rather dystopian tinge. Mm. which is just this scary idea that we're all kind of being subsumed definition to be included or absorbed into something else by this all subsuming amorphous gelatinous internet substance we're all kind of being melted into that and we're losing some of our individuality and at the same time some of our community but mm. that's all talk for for later times yeah i have a hunch that this semester is going to be the most transformative personally okay because each week we're going to be basically nitpacking based on our own experience of the internet sure because we don't know anyone else's and i think speaking about it on the podcast is going to make me want to try and change any holdover habits that i might still have yeah i mean this is probably the topic that we've covered so far those being degrowth education storytelling and nature and now the internet that I think you and I talk about the most off air. Oh, absolutely. This is gripe every day. It. Like we gripe about it, but hopefully mm. on the podcast we'll be more constructive. But I also say like we'll do research and we will try and speak from a wider lens because I think it'll get boring mm. if it's just oh, us journaling our screen time every week. And that yeah. kind of thing. But just to go back to that poem, the eye motif. Mm. Maybe we could explain that a little bit because maybe that's a bit of a um esoteric or like poetic visual that you and i uh talk about quite often but mm. it's a it's a something of a of a launching pad for the whole conversation of the internet certainly we consume the internet through our eyes mainly yes. at yeah. times our ears but the vision of the solo scene is beautiful sustainable and tactile right which the internet is completely devoid of tactility like it's just one-dimensional always and so with the eyes, they're the things that I think are being the most impacted literally yeah. and also metaphorically by the internet. And even the way like the posture you and the posture you assume when you're consuming things on the internet is hunched and then your eyes are just like narrowed in on that one little yeah. thing. And I think it's almost literally affecting our eye shape. This is quite pseudoscientific. But from my experience, I feel like people who perhaps have not used the internet too much their eyes are almost wider and more present. Yeah. And then when you're on the internet so much, your eyes, when you're offline, are kind of less present. They're almost like dissociated a bit. Dead, dead eyes. Yeah. 
I can say it because I feel like I have them. But um, yeah, let's focus on the positive, which is that quite often you'll see, in, especially in videos of pre-internet people, like mm. the, the mythological almost 90s and earlier, everybody just looks different. Mm. And I'm just, we're kind of chalking up to the eyes, but really it's a whole kind of their countenance is different. Maybe older people listening to this are like nodding along and saying, it was a different time. It's not mm. that I just, I'm just saying, I don't think it's just nostalgia. I feel like the people genuinely, they saw the world differently. Mm. And I would say in a more positive way. And sometimes you'll see it with people like walking around today. And those are my favorite people when you just randomly, you're like, oh, you're, you're like an enlightened being because you just, you don't know internet slang. That's great. Mm. And something else you were talking about, like the posture we assume, it's really interesting because back in the day, like long before internet, it used to be kind of an insult to people who who were deemed to be, I suppose like indoor kids would be the, the modern equivalent or like who would stay inside too much, who would read and were kind of pencil necked and weren't like very active, is that their neck posture would be forward because they'd always be craning over desks. Mm. But now it's it's quite universal, I think, I think. Mm. I don't think we're going to get to it this week comparing the internet to books and TV and radio, mm. but we definitely will in the future. Yeah. But perhaps even a disclaimer that, okay, you can compare it to those things all you want, but even those things are about 100 to 300 years old mm. that everyone was reading or watching TV. Like this is all very recent. Mm. So you really can't make the equivalent that, oh, it's always been this way because it certainly has not. So the first question of today, we have three, is how has the internet shaped us? Because I feel like we're quite average. Certainly, we're the last vestige of, we had a, we had a small childhood before we were online. Sure. So my first thought, I mean, this is also, this is going to be a bit personal, obviously, but I think it's important to kind of contextualize the next 12 weeks. So I thought initially, the internet kind of isolated me from everyone. I was a very outgoing child from my memory. I'm sure people still thought I was quiet. But once everyone started getting social media and being online all the time, I wasn't allowed. My parents, bless their hearts, did not allow me on the internet until I was 12 is kind of when I started on the internet. But I don't think I really... Because I had such a foundation, I never really got into it the way that most people did, probably around age seven onwards. And because of this, I was quite isolated. I didn't know any of the new songs that were coming out. I never, until probably last year, got into any like celebrity online culture the way that I feel like kids, like when One Direction arose or Justin Bieber, that was almost an entire internet phenomenon. It wasn't just, oh, I heard his songs on the radio and I love them the way that perhaps music was in the past, it was like, did you see what he did Tuesday night with his friend on his Instagram story sort of thing? Like it was this deep, almost personal relationship that people had with celebrities and I didn't have that. So it isolated me from my friends and the fact that I didn't have increasingly anything to talk to them about. So it's access to culture. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're like what you described is pretty much charting the decade or so when the internet became like a niche part of culture to a mandatory pretty much mm -hmm. for young people mandatory way of of interacting with it and keeping up with it yeah certainly and people would have oh i'm playing this new game like you know games used to trend i don't think they do so much anymore but when everyone used to have ipods i think they do they do you get your among us every now and again yeah but i feel like at the the early stages maybe it was just because of my age but yeah. games would trend and I would just wouldn't know that they were trending and everyone would be talking about them, playing them. But I was never interested in it because I almost always saw it from an outsider's perspective of like, well, why would you spend hours on this game? But if you're just in it and kind of have like the cultural context of why you should be playing the game, it's, it makes more sense for them. Mm. And this reminds me, I was listening to a podcast telling a story of a computer. Do you know what the game Go is? Yeah, of course. Okay, so Go is like a more advanced version of chess. I didn't know what it was, really. Well, it's not a version of chess, but it's like chess, but has way more possibilities for how it can be played. And so AI technology to be able to 
play this game is kind of like the next step. If the AI can beat the Grandmaster, then it recently did. Yep. And it was discussing, there came this point in the game where technically there were two options. Like by every human standard, it was like you could make one of two moves. But then the computer made a third move that no one had ever done before would have considered just like a complete blunder. Yeah. And the podcast was discussing how the computer AI didn't have the cultural or the historic context of like, this is a silly move to make, but it did it anyway. So it was almost like pure creativity. And I feel like that's kind of what we are. We are the AI, which is kind of a bad (laughs) analogy, but we are the AI when we don't have the internet. It's like, you can just kind of make objective decisions of Mm. like, is this floppy bird game actually good? No, it's really boring kind of for babies. But if you have all the cultural, oh, it's funny, this guy was doing it for like 12 hours straight and you have a bit more of the cultural and historic knowledge that comes with the internet for everything, then you'll be more inclined to just kind of do it without thinking. And I think that's how the internet affected me over time. It kind of sucked me into having to be like the humans and not like the creative computer. And it also... Along this lines also made me start identifying myself as a book nerd, as a movie nerd, Mm. as like a a nerd in general. Whereas before I was always just like, yeah, I like school. But that wasn't my personality. My personality was separate from that. So through culture again. Yeah. These are the types of books I read. These are the types of films Mm -hmm. I watch. Yeah. This type of music I listen to perhaps. Yeah. And most of my friends were into the books too so it was kind of like a way that i could relate to them be like oh i read those and then you'd get sucked into these internet like fandoms this is kind of the internet celebrity that i got sucked into is like the hunger games fandoms and the divergent fandoms then obviously the the films that came after those and then that's kind of how i started identifying myself was based on things that i did offline and then making it my whole personality Mm. That's just my first point, so. Okay, how many do you have? I have five. Okay, I have three, so I'll mention my first one now. Um, I was trying to pick ways that it shaped me that weren't all bad, because mm-hmm. I feel like that would be a, a lame discussion and maybe too personal. I hope that'll be a trend through the semester in general, actually, is us trying to find things that are actually rich for discussion and not just by mm-hmm. the of condemnation. Because if people have listened to Solo Scene before, they know we don't have, going into it, probably the most positive opinion on the internet, so it's... It's important to have like a balanced conversation. But anyway, so the first one I mentioned is somewhat analogous to yours there is the relationship to community. And what this means is, I'll just read down what I wrote beside that bullet point, which is it provided instant and infinite access to communities with um, apostrophes, which shared my interest, very different from where I lived. Because where I lived in quite rural uh, area of Canada, there was just, because I was a transplant, obviously an immigrant when I was eight, um, there was nobody who was into the things that I was into. Like at school, there was nobody who watched football or played football or soccer. Nobody, like it sounds ridiculous, but nobody really liked to read. Nobody was into movies. Nobody was into the types of video games I played. Just in general, I was like culturally mismatched, I'd say that. So then it can be quite, as you say, isolating or depressing. But yeah, the, what the internet provides for children as well as for adults is just ready-made you could use the word fandoms or whatever it may be, but like these um, chambers of people who are all talking about the things that for many days you are just talking about in your head to yourself. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a validation in that, in that sense. Like it's not even a real community because I, for the most part, I never interacted with those things. It was mostly just reading or as the internet term is lurking. Yeah, it was just, it was enough to know that there were other people like that. Mm. And so I think that... Um, Again, there's that question of of the internet forming or maybe exaggerating personalities that are inclined towards defining themselves through culture, mm. which I don't think is is really an ancient thing. I think that's rather a modern phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and it you know it appeals to like hobbyists and often men, I think, because men tend to be more interested in things like I don't know cars so it's like if you live in a place where there's no body working on cars you can go online and just find forums and forums of websites where you can kind of communicate 
with people about your passion, mm-hmm. which is fine in the moment. The long-term impacts of said engagement, you know, to be determined, I think. Mm. Actually, maybe we can just talk about that next week, like how the internet forms people defined by culture. We've touched on it a lot this week, but we could address the question directly. Yeah, I think that's good. Oh, and another note here for community, personal to you and I, obviously, is that I think we can both have like a before and after we met each other mm-hmm. when we were in high school and we didn't live, like we, we didn't go to the same school. So, you know, it's a boring story for the listeners, but basically we were something of each other's social lifeline, I think, or emotional lifeline, mm-hmm. but through a phone always. Yeah. Like through internet communication. Yeah. Without that, we would have been forced to write letters and call. Yeah. Which was which would have been similar, but it would have been even more challenging because as we, we met in grade 11, those years were kind of when we got quite isolated as people who chose to live a different lifestyle, you yeah. could say. No, but it's entirely different from calling and, and writing letters, I think, because it's yeah. during the day. Exactly. It's during class often. Mm-hmm. It's just all the time, actually. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was thinking a bit about how the internet made me obsessed with being countercultural. Mm. Most of mine are negative. I do have one positive, but anyway. I was always kind of that like hipster kid. I didn't know what that word was until the internet. Yeah. But I was always a bit of a hipster growing up as a young child. I would always define myself based on what doing the opposite of what everyone else did. But the internet made me even more so because you'd be constantly inundated with what everyone else likes. Whereas before, like, if you had a group of friends, you could all kind of just have different interests and it'd be fine. You would just find common ground to talk about. And, like, if you didn't really want to talk about Harry Styles, you wouldn't have to and vice versa. And But with the internet, people were posting constantly and always looking for things to talk about. So you'd be inundated with everything people liked. And it almost leaves you... If you're a person who is instinctually countercultural, as I think some people just are, or maybe it's like from their childhood, but it leaves you almost with like nothing to like. Mm. And we've both kind of reclaimed our swiftiness and our... I'm not sure what that means. Your, your love of Taylor Swift. <laughs> we, like we, we're just like, yeah, some of Taylor Swift's songs are really good. Okay. Like we've kind of reclaimed the fact that I feel like or I did at least, I used to define myself by, no, I don't like Taylor Swift, no, I don't like Harry Styles, no, I won't dress like this. Okay. But then it left me with nothing. But as adults, we're kind of like, I'll admit, I like pop music. I'll admit this trend is actually kind of fun. Let me throw a psychological spanner into those works. (laughs) I don't know how much this relates to the internet, but it's just a a funny point of view, which is I feel like because choosing your own path and being unique is now so widespread and an ideology, Mm-hmm. Um, it is countercultural to like pop music and very popular <laughs> things. So that's why I think like I would proudly proclaim like yeah, I'm so basic. Yeah, because I feel like nobody wants to admit that. <laughs> it's like what I was talking about. Um, I, I really want my favorite book to be something like Romeo and Juliet because it's just so widely read and so well known that I feel like almost nobody touts it as their favorite book. Yeah, but the internet, it, what it does is it makes you think about these things too much. Mm-hmm. in general because like this doesn't actually matter oh. like if you met someone they're like what's your favorite book they wouldn't actually care what the answer was i would but... you would but the average person probably wouldn't okay and i've also found because of this like doubling down of my aversion to what's trendy it makes it challenging now when i do find a group of people who like the things i like like literally at the garden, we all enjoy sustainability, gardening, but there's still a slight, my instinct is to say I'm different than these people, even if we really are quite similar and get along very, very well. But it's this, that first instinct is, no, like we're nothing alike. Then you have to kind of rely on your second instinct of saying, of training that second instinct to say, you are actually quite similar. Let your guard down and become friends with these people. And another thing the internet did to me was that I found it like really fueled anxiety for me. And I think everyone has this in a different way. For me, it started, I said it kind of entered the internet when I was 12. Everyone 
who was alive then knows that the world was going to end in 2012. Right. You know that. Yeah. And as someone who had basically been isolated, only watching Teletoons and Disney Channel until this point, to all of a sudden be exposed to all these doomsday <laughs> message boards and like whatever. I don't even know how I was exposed to it. People would like talk about it kind of lightly in school, like ha ha yes. ha. But to me, like, I just thought it was real. Like I just trusted everything. So it one fostered distrust in me because after that I was like, I'm not going to trust anything anyone says. Mm -hmm. But it also fueled anxiety for years. And then you start Googling and some people, myself included, do this about health issues. It's like, yes, oh yes. my goodness, I lost two hairs. Right. I probably am. I'm probably going to die within think, a week. Yeah, that's a more universal example. I feel <laughs> like your 2012 um, story that you've told me so many times. And I really just want, if I could go back in time, that would be the time I would see because I really want to see... Like 12-year-old Alicia just panicking about it. I was terrified and I would not talk to anybody about it. But anyway, it. so I think that's quite an individual <laughs> thing. But the health, everyone knows that. Yeah. It's like if you go on the internet, everything is ex extreme. Or politics even. Like yeah. Another example, like we went 12, but we were 16, 17 during the 2016 US election. Mm -hmm. And it's like if you were on Twitter every day during that, there's no way to be happy. No. Because you're just you're too immersed in all this stuff that doesn't matter that much to your daily life. Yeah. Especially if you are Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> which is the, the the weird thing about global politics and global news. So yeah, that's definitely okay, anxiety inducing extremities, let's say, something mm -hmm. like that. Okay, my next one is tastes. Because similar to community, I would say what the internet did and does is provide instant and infinite access to types of films, art, literature, clothes, music that if you are just living locally, you will have n often never heard of, especially if you don't have like museums or art classes in your school or libraries or that kind of thing, which I didn't really. So that I think was another thing that it, it shaped my tastes. Like one in terms of kind of exploring things that I already kind of liked, like for an, in for an example, I always liked cartoons and comics. But then when you go on the internet, you're like, oh, look at all these like niche, like 70s French cartoons and stuff like this that mm. you would otherwise not have known of. And it, it takes you down these these rabbit holes, aesthetic rabbit holes, which, again, I'm not saying they're all good or all bad. I'm not passing judgment on it, but that's just what happens, I think. And so it it tends to give you more and more idiosyncratic tastes, especially compared to people around you who maybe aren't on the internet at all. Mm. Like, let's say as a as a child. The only music you listen to is radio on the school bus going to and fro school. Mm -hmm. So, and it'll be on like a pop station or something like that. And you dislike most of the songs except a couple. That's how most people are with the radio, I think. So then if you have access to the internet, you can find those couple, listen to those artists, listen to the music that inspired those because you can easily track it all down and just go further and further up until you find what you really, really like. Like you find your sweet spot or as people would call it now, your aesthetic. And it's it's miles off from the initial entry point, which kind of is wide culture on the radio or the television. Mm. So yeah, that's an another way that we kind of isolate ourselves, even aesthetically or culturally. Yeah, I think we also isolate ourselves <clears throat> from other generations. In the past, the kids with the really niche music taste would probably just like the records their parents had or the CDs their parents had. Okay, yeah. And so at least then they would have a close bond with their parents over the music and then by extension their siblings. Mm. And I was thinking the internet basically, I mean, as we know, it's obsessed with Gen Zs, Gen X, whatever, like yeah, all the different weird. distinctions. It really isolates us even from people a year younger or a year older. Let's talk about that next week. Yeah. The generation divide that the internet so fascinated with. Mm -hmm. Because I think it really exacerbates it and makes everyone an island, not just from their peers, but from people older and younger on the other hand devil's advocate what about tiktok making popular like 80s pop songs again i know but i feel like parents would be like well like it's not necessarily the music the people around you liked oh because it's still a globalized thing you mean yeah okay perhaps we can talk about it next week sure the last one i would say the way the internet shaped me is my I was trying to think of something like personality or goals or ambition because I think this is maybe more a function of just the era rather than just the internet. 
but it was kind of my only exposure and i think often is for a lot of children to what i would say what i would call maybe like tertiary career career paths or creative career paths mm. because if you are just like going to school as a normal kid and like hanging around all that school funnels you into is traditional jobs which are mostly boring and people mostly don't like them Maybe this phenomenon is kind of coming home to roost now because you hear those statistics about like 90% of American American kids just want to be YouTubers. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's not good. But also it 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 gives you access to this other path. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's yeah, like, certainly. oh, I can just do whatever I want. Yeah. And that's that's exciting for, for people. Yeah, this is something I noted about myself. This is my one positive is that the internet made me realize I was a creative person. Mm. And my whole life I would have never identified myself as one. And even until mid-university, I would just thought, yeah, I'm like into science. I'm into math. Would you call yourself a creative? I wouldn't. Okay, you don't like that term? N- like, what about I'm a not... What cr- about a creator? I don't, I don't I know. I like that's very self-aggrandizing a term. I think if you're like a really great artist whose works in museums, you say, yeah, I'm a creative. But for me, it's like I do a lot of other things. Like I do random marketing, random like, I don't know. Selling lemonade stands? Yeah, basically. And (laughs) that it taught me that you can be creative and that I am, in fact, that's my personality type because I was always around people who weren't necessarily creative or didn't consider themselves so. And so I didn't know that I was. And then the internet told me, hey, you can like use these things that you really like and like make them a part of your work, not just the things you do for fun. Mm. And people always called me creative growing up. They're like, well, you do ballet, you play piano. You're always doing these like art projects with the kids. It's like, yeah, that's just what I, that's just my hobbies. Yeah. But the internet kind of said it, it can be, if it brings you joy, it can kind of be more than just a hobby. I think that's basically, that's a good way of putting what it's doing on a widespread level to everybody our age or younger is mm-hmm. thinking, I actually don't want to spend 50 years doing something I don't enjoy. Mm-hmm. which is a weirdly radical idea. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure how well that actually leads society to function, but it's it's kind of mm-hmm. what's happening. Like, an example that ties together all three of mine, those being taste, community, and goals, is I used to go on Yahoo Answers. Mm. They had the books and authors section, and I would always just read a lot, a lot, a lot of prompts that people would post, and I think they were other children mostly. At least I hope so. Like people would post their writing on there basically for critique and I would do the same. And it was like, that's a community that ideally would be in person, in school, like Dead Poet Society or something like that. But because of geography, often it isn't. So the internet is like, it doesn't just limit things to where you are. I mean, mm. I know this is very, that's what the internet is, but yeah, you know what I mean? Thanks for that great summary, Aaron. The next question is, what was the intent of the internet, which is quite related to what you just said? Like, this is just what the internet is. Okay. But is it what the internet always was? Was for. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. Questions two and three kind of go together a little bit. So the first one is, what, what was the original intent of the internet? And the second one is kind of creating a map of the internet mm. today. But I think you have the history lesson for this. Yeah, okay. I do. <laughs> because we will be coming out with a zine in a few weeks. But I worked on the history section of the zine, and this is my summary. The internet originally was a way to access a mainframe computer remotely because computers you used to be able to just like work on them. This is in the 50s, but then they were getting so large and so hot that you had to access them from a distance, otherwise you'd be warmed wow, okay. or heated. <laughs> and so... The internet was a way to, yeah, access the computer from a distance. And then someone had the idea, what if we have a few people, what they call time sharing the computers, and you can all access it at the same time or kind of alternating times. So then there was a connection of a few different. But what for? Oh, initially it was just to process data, scientific data. Okay. So like we have this huge data set. Let's try and figure out. Rather than keeping it on paper. Yeah, exactly. So it was for processing scientific data. It was like the original, original thing. And then the U.S. government said, oh, we need to find a way to make our research more efficient because the states is such a huge 
country. People across the country would be duplicating research. They were trying to be really efficient and win the space race. And so they said, we're going to try and connect a bunch of these mainframe computers to each other Mm. to transmit the research that's being done. And then you can kind of say, oh, I have an idea for a scientific project. Let me see if it's been done already so you don't duplicate it. So that was like the very original purpose of it. A professional tool that kind of eliminated geographic boundaries. Yeah, exactly. And then at the same time, something was arising in France, a commerce version. So about basically spreading information about among central banks about interest rates and processing best interest rates and stuff like that. Or sorry, that was in the UK. And then in France, it was a science network similar to the US one. So there were kind of these like internets popping up. But then in France is where they, the scientific communities realized they could kind of connect asynchronously. Like in the States, it was just a straight line. But if one of the nodes was knocked out, it would be destroyed, like the connection. But in France, they kind of had a bunch of a web, which is where that word comes from, of computers. And then in 1984, all of these kind of projects were merged across the oceans and across the countries. It happened very quickly, as we know. And then everything was just kind of merged. And until the 90s, it was still only university campuses, banks, governments using this. But then in what year? 1994, it was privatized and people started selling dial-up internet to consumers to use. And then that's kind of where things went downhill. So, <laughs> or rather they became more individual rather than collectives collaborating on, on information and sharing data for the sake of professional projects, mm-hmm. something like that. Exactly. Okay. I had a quote from 1995, which I, I'll share. Okay. It's quite a long one. It was by this man Clifford Stoll in what is a now infamous article for Newsweek in 1995 that was called Why the Web Won't Be Nirvana. Mm. Um, so he said, this is kind of a compressed quote because it's a long article, but I'm uneasy about this most trendy and oversold community. Visionaries see a future of telecommuting wor- workers, interactive libraries, and multimedia classrooms. They speak of electronic town meetings and virtual communities. Commerce and businesses will shift from offices and malls to networks and modems. And the freedom of digital networks will make governments more democratic. Baloney. Do our computer pundits lack all common sense? What's missing from this electronic wonderland? Human contact. Discount the fawning techno-burble about virtual communities. Computers and networks isolate us from one another. A network chat line is a limp substitute for meeting friends over coffee. No interactive multimedia display comes close to the excitement of a live concert. And who'd prefer cybersex to the real thing? While the internet beckons brightly, seductively flashing an icon of knowledge as power, this non-place lures us to surrender our time on Earth. A poor substitute it is, this virtual reality where frustration is legion and where, in the holy names of education and progress, important aspects of human interactions are relentlessly devalued. So I feel like Clifford Stoll is kind of like one of the solar scene patron saints now. Yeah, it sounds like it. Oh my goodness. But the reason I say it's a now infamous article is obviously because he was kind of wrong in terms of the, he thought that these things would be barriers to their adoption. Mm. I think he's kind of right in a lot of ways. But um, so the article I read was basically making fun at these quotes for being so, as the article said, fantastically incorrect. But also in the same way, he's kind of fantastically correct in, in some regards. Um, I love that. I love that word "non-place." The emphasis yeah. is the seductive "non-place" because it isn't a place. Yeah, like you are completely when you're on the internet, you forget your body mm. entirely. Yeah, you could be like slouching in bed, you could be on the metro, you could be yeah. walking, and you just are completely unaware of your surroundings. But you're also not actually in a different place. Yeah. Wow. I've often thought sometimes. Like if your phone, you know how the Wii, the Nintendo Wii had a, like every, I don't know, maybe every hour it would come up with a message mm-hmm. like, get some exercise. Yeah. Or like turn it off. If your phone had something like, it may be in the future when everything is surveilled and every camera has, every room has a camera in the corner. Um, like every 15 minutes that you were on it, it just cut to 
the picture of you on it, yeah. it would make people be like, what am I doing here? Because mm. as you say, you forget yourself. Yeah, the Apple watches, I think, the buzz or something every 15 minutes. Yeah, but it's the image. Like the yeah, image of the oneself because you'd see, you're like, what? Look at me. Yeah. I'm covered in dust. Mm. Cheeto dust. I don't know why it's always Cheeto. So it's Cheeto mention, but. Dust, <laughs> um, but So yeah, I thought that quote was just interesting to take you into the what was going on in 1995 because this was not a small faction of people who were like, the internet, that will mm. never catch on. And it, it was just funny because these reasons is a lot of the things that we talk about on Solo Scene. Mm. Now, like, again, to play devil's advocate, people would say that, and people do say, internet defenders would say, but it doesn't replace real meetings with coffee. It doesn't replace real concerts. It doesn't replace genuine human interaction. What it's replaced is the boring moments between all those things. And I agree, like, to an extent. Like, I'm, what I'm saying is people still do go, go to concerts, but they'll also be on their phone all the time and that kind of thing. Um, but I just think that those boring moments, those boring insignificant moments that we think it's just better to be doing something on the internet, I'm not sure if it actually is. You know what I mean? Like, mm. it's more fun. And as Clifford says, it's more seductive. It's more appealing a, a prospect. But yeah. I don't know if it's actually better for you. So yeah, that's I'm, part of what the semester will be. Yeah, I keep having a bunch of questions come from my head. So maybe I'll just mention them and we don't have to talk about them next week. But okay. we can talk about the literal effects on our brains. And then, of course, we can talk about power of boredom. And I also mm. was thinking we could talk about hyper-individualization and how the internet makes it worse and kind of defining that word and how it applies to the internet. And then I also had a quote. Mine was from the mid-'80s, so it was a little sooner. But it's funny how a lot of the early, as you're saying, people thought it wasn't going to catch on yeah. or wasn't going to. Yeah, and he wasn't just a pundit who was new to it. He'd been on the internet for decades at that point, mm -hmm. like working on it and doing data stuff. So that's why I thought it was interesting. Yeah, exactly. So this quote is from the National Science Foundation, which was the backbone of the internet in the 80s. So like it was still quite small. And they claimed that the internet was for research, not commerce. And they would only allocate funding under an acceptable use of like an acceptable use policy that they had written out. Mm. So it's like you can't market to people. You can't be trying to sell, which is obviously like all the internet is now. And they were firm believers that the internet would be thwarted and devalued if it were open up to commercial in interests. Yeah. Which is like, I think that could be an episode in itself. Right. How advertising has ruined it. Yeah. And how like the commercialization of the internet has basically completely mutated it from what it originally was to what it is today yeah. i mean it could be worse i don't want to count my chickens but uh, yeah that's a good point speaking of chickens by the way yeah. instead of an organism of the week this semester which so it seems we traditionally do every episode kind of highlights a creature that we think is cool or endangered or just somehow relevant we often stretch to find some metaphorical significance to the wider discussion of the episode this semester we're doing a meme of the week woohoo I didn't draw it because that felt a little bit too much like glorifying memes. Mm -hmm. That felt a bit strange. And also because this is a podcast and most people just listen. Although you can find us on YouTube. If you want to see us. Yeah. So we've seen podcasts on YouTube. But the meme of the week, the first meme of the week ever, is the My Last Brain Cell or mm. My Last Two Brain Cells meme of the week. So this is the meme that inspired the memes of the week because we felt like we could either do an episode on memes or we could sprinkle them throughout. Yeah, I feel like sprinkling throughout is a, is a better idea. It's a bit less oppressive. A little bit of seasoning. Yeah. Meme seasoning. Um, hopefully people know what this one is. I think, mm. it's, I think it's quite big. I think so. Basically, the concept is there will be some funny image of one or usually two things. I think I prefer yeah. it when there's last, my last two brain cells. Often cartoon, kind of glitching or like looking silly. And the caption will say, my last two brain cells when something like when some situation happens or or just mm -hmm. my last two brain cells yeah um and know your meme which is the meme meme historian website i suppose cites the first image occurring in 2016 as a family guy reference family mm -hmm. guy meme and the joke was about being drunk it's like my last two brain cells when drunk you know blah 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 um and also in 2016 there was a spongebob meme um that was captioned weed versus my last brain cell. Mm. So the reason I mentioned these origins is because it started out as a, I'm so inebriated or this, this substance has done something to me 
that I'm down to my last one or two brain cells. Mm -hmm. And it's whether slowly or quickly, it has become now, there is no context or qualifier like that. It's just kind of an, an implied thing that everybody understands. Well, yeah, we're all down to our last one or two brain cell. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's really fascinating because if you actually think about that, it's like, why are we down to our last two brain cells? I think it's, it's kind of a meta reference to the destructive cognitive power of the scrolling itself. The meme itself is kind of mm. talking about itself. You know what I mean? Yeah, certainly. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it kind of, it went through, I think it's also very common with exhausted students during yeah. exam season. It's like, my last two brain cells trying to write my third essay of the week or something. Mm-hmm. And that again, that makes sense because it was just like alcohol or drugs. It's like there has been this big stressor on you yeah, that has brought you down to your last one or two brain cells. Mm-hmm. But, but now, I, as I say, that kind of corrosive stressor is just, it's like, well, yeah, we all have that. Yeah, I'd be like my last two brain cells trying to sign my name on a receipt or something like super innocuous, yeah. like not innocuous. Just common. Yeah. It's like, well, why are you down to your last two brain cells? Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, I think, because it's usually a cartoon or absurdism or like a glitch or like, I don't know, one of the SpongeBob close-ups where they're looking silly or ugly, it's, we're characterizing ourselves and our brains as stupid or gross or otherwise kind of inept. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of an interesting insight as well, because that's obviously not a nice thing if a lot of people are thinking this about themselves. You want a society... Full of brain cells. Yeah, you want it to be like my thousand brain cells, and they're all like lifting something up, celebrating together. Yeah, <laughs> Rocky on yeah. the beach. But I really think this is about like I really think it doesn't require that much analysis. It's just this is people recognizing that the internet has done this to them. Yeah, like rather than drugs or or a hectic exam schedule, this is just people recognizing that scrolling has done this to them. Yeah, that's that. Okay. So we're going to make a map of the internet. I trust your map better than I trust mine. Okay. Perhaps you can explain yours and I'll interject anywhere that mine differs. Sure. Um, So I didn't want to make it too kind of visually confusing because, again, this is a podcast. So I'll just say there are 10 continents Mm -hmm. and the ocean between them I'm just roughly calling search engine C. Okay. Because I I was like, it's kind of when we were talking about geography where, like, what is Antarctica? Mm. I feel that way a little bit about Google. Yeah. Like, so is that a website? What, what is that? Anyway, yeah. it, but it helps you access all these other things. So I'm not sure. And the other thing is, I know that this will be very skewed towards, let's call it the consumer internet, the average Joe going on Safari or Google. Yeah, of course. Whereas the internet, it has wider, you know, it does a lot of things behind the curtain that we don't realize, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, the internet, I think even perhaps even over this semester, is going to change quite a bit. Mm. There was the release of the AI search engines, but also apparently Canada is trying to pass a bill where Google or the search engines would have to pay news outlets for displaying their information or using their information. So, you know, when you search, like, what's the population of Canada? It just says the number. So it would have to, if it was a news outlet, pay them for displaying that because it's not actually funneling traffic Oy. to the websites anymore. Okay. Which I think this is a slippery slope. Some places have done it. Denmark did it. Oh, you mean because no one would actually click on the website because they have the info right there. Yeah. So like it used to be, okay, Google was bringing traffic yeah. to these places, but now it's not. Anyway, it's going to be a whole thing. Okay. So these continents, um, I'll start with the, the evil, the Antarctica of it, which is the dark web. Okay. No one knows what it is. I felt like I had to mention it because it's, I feel like it's actually quite a big part of the internet. Perhaps, yeah. But I, I wouldn't know. So dark web is there being all evil. What I wrote down was three question marks and evil things. Evil so things. It feels totally like livers. We even talk about. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's an organ black market for sure, but mm. let's not name these things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> immediately adjacent to the dark web, I have gaming. Mm. And this is like... This isn't like Twitch or watching YouTube videos of games. This is like online gaming. You're playing World of Warcraft, Splatoon, Mario Kart, Call of Duty, whatever, against people online. The other thing is I'm not sure about the relative size of these continents, but I drew gaming as a small little bean. Okay. (laughs) Bean-sized continent. Okay, above that we have the kind of archipelago, I suppose, uh, that 
the biggest island of which is social media. Mm. And we know what's on social media. You have your LinkedIn, your Flickers, your Pinterests, your IGs, your Twitters, your Tumblrs, your Reddits, your Twitches, your blogs, your TikToks, your Facebooks. Kind of beside that is DMs. Not sure if that counts, but this is like private communication. Yeah. Emails, WhatsApps, Discord, I think would go in here rather than social media. iMessage, mm. Zoom, I think would go in there. Yeah. Um, I mean, also swelling around this archipelago, I have it's called Algorithm Current. Yeah. Because this is where I feel like the algorithm sweeps up most people, like the turtles in Finding Nemo. Um, another island in this stretch of islands is media. So this is media without the social, which basically means no comments. And it's by a traditional institution rather than just randos. Yeah. Your New York Times, your CNNs, your CBCs, your BBCs, your NBCs, generally CCCs. a lot of BCs. Yeah. Um, I think during the semester, we can kind of talk about the, the difference or maybe the fading difference between media and social media. Yeah, I think your BuzzFeeds. Your BuzzFeeds? Where, you know, where mm. do these things fit in? Yeah, I think we should also have an episode where we just teach people about the algorithm. So I think people, like younger people know about it. Right. But some people perhaps like aren't aware of how dangerous it is. Yeah. And maybe we can make the episode and say, send this to your grandma you mean like or something like that. Radicalization of the algorithm? You mean like that? Radicalization, but also just like, sometimes it's just like this submission like it's just like makes you like oh i love this it's like they're all calf videos and it just kind yes. of like numbing your brain yeah it numbs your brain it, it gives you much you take much more time on it than you used to mm-hmm. a few couple months ago i i like tried to edit my youtube account so there was no algorithm in, uh, involved there was no history it doesn't recommend videos based on what i've watched before mm-hmm. um so that because i like the website but it's like you go on for something like you watch that something and then you don't like you look to the right and say like, oh, that one looks kind of good as well. And then you just keep going like that. Mm-hmm. But as we've seen, it doesn't like it hasn't really taken out the algorithm. It did to an extent. But also, every time you log in, the first thing that shows up is Solacine. Yeah. Or soccer. Well, that's why I'm subscribed like, well, to Solacine. Uh, I think I'm the only one subscribed. <laughs> no, you're subscribed as well. Oh, sorry. Another island in the social media conglomeration is knowledge didn't really know how to call this one but this is where you get your wikipedias your oxford english dictionaries your forbes's <laughs> your yelps your imdbs and your dedicated websites to specific things like yeah i don't know if i'm learning french the website for conjugating verbs or something mm-hmm. and the reason i say this is kind of i drew a little bridge to social media is because again the the line is blurred like imdb you know where does that fall in or, or yelp mm-hmm. it's like a lot of our information is just crowdsourced these days. Yeah. Um, also, I drew an arrow to this that said dying. Because I feel like this is the part of the internet that is kind of dying and just being replaced by those out-and-out social media websites. Yeah, I think. Because it's like, well, I just follow a bunch of educational accounts on yeah, Instagram, exactly. so I get it from there. Um, then I have streaming. <laughs> this is... Uh, there's a lot of pirates, obviously, around this, this island. Yeah, of course. Um, your YouTubes, your Spotify's, your podcasts, your Netflixes your you know other videos that we won't talk about but in general i feel like this is a very big constant these days yeah a lot of bandwidth whatever that is (laughs) um retail that's another constant yeah so you have your big corporations your nikes your apples amazon well your amazons which are like online supermarkets yeah with all these corporations in and your etsy's who are just randos trying to side hustle, as mm. it were, or big cartels even. Um, then there's also groceries, and I just put ads in here. Even yeah. though ads are really swimming all around. But Yeah, ads are like the atmosphere. Yeah, well, I did have an underground kind of super continent mm. that is called data, because I didn't yeah. really know where I would put it, but that's just underneath everything, isn't it? Like yeah. every footstep you take is being tracked on this super continent underneath. Um, and I also had... Something that goes above, like a big flying ship, which is collecting things to archive. So mm-hmm. it goes very quickly and just just kind of abducts everything, like a, like like the a cloud. UFO. The cloud. Yeah, I should have called it that. Yeah, but I I think um, the dirigible is a better. 
Well, I never said it was dirigible, but we can, yeah. Yeah, we can use that. And then attached to the retail continent is the workplace continent. This is kind of the boring stuff that I'm not 100% sure because it differs by company and by industry so much, right? But you have like your intranets, you know, like a Walmart will have an, a connected kind of internet of its own mm-hmm. that average people can't access. Um, you Google Docs even. I'm not sure if Zoom would fit in here, but um, point of sale machines, those are all internet. School websites is a big thing, like whether you're in high school, middle school or university, your access point where you can submit your assignments and do your quizzes and that kind of thing. Signing up for shifts is something that some people have to deal with online. And then finally, I just had one with a money logo on, which entails your markets, your stocks, your cryptos, your bankings, your taxes, Mm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. The economic, boring stuff. I divided mine into four, video, audio, visual, and written. Data, and then from the data I had branching out, like, say, for example, the video I had, once we figured out how to transmit video, which is MP4, you'd have gaming, telecommunications, streaming, and then there's, from each of these four things, a different social media kind of arose. So from the video, TikTok, and then from the the written, it was Twitter and Reddit, and then from the visual, Instagram, Facebook. There isn't an audio social media yet, so. I think there is. Isn't Isn't that what Clubhouse is? Oh, maybe. And Discord, I think. Okay, well. Whether that counts as social, but. Too bad. Sound like Gary Vee over here. <laughs> Audio is going to be the next big thing. Yeah. Gary Vee, is he his own constant with how much stuff he puts out or? Probably. So much. So thank you all for listening to the first episode of the internet semester. <laughs> yeah. I hope that you will have gained some knowledge or some self-loathing from this. <laughs> I know I have. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like this episode started off really well, but now I'm really questioning the, the purpose of that map section. We were kind of just listing websites, and also it maybe got a little bit Ralph Breaks the Internet. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Which you never want to be. Anyway, I mean, so much content, but nobody's content. 